The Old Testament reading for today is Proverbs 15, verses 1 through 9. The sermon text is 1 Timothy 6, 11 through 12. Hear now the reading of God's most holy word. Proverbs 15, starting in verse 1. A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. The tongue of the wise commends knowledge, but the mouths of fools pour out folly. The eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. A gentle tongue is a tree of life, but perverseness in it breaks the spirit. A fool despises his father's instruction, but whoever heeds reproof is prudent. In the house of the righteous there is much treasure But trouble befalls the income of the wicked. The lips of the wise spread knowledge, not so the hearts of fools. The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord, but the prayer of the upright is acceptable to Him. The way of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord, but He loves him who pursues righteousness. Let us go now to 1 Timothy 6. And look at verses 11 and 12. Paul writes to Timothy saying, But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. So far the reading of God's most holy word. May He add His blessing to the preaching of it this morning. In the passage that is before us today, Paul turns his attention from negatively warning against false teachers to positively exhorting Timothy to be faithful in the ministry and also in the Christian life. In verse 11 we read, But as for you, O man of God, And so you see that Paul directly addresses Timothy here, and notice that he refers to him as a man of God. We are to ask, what does this phrase, man of God, mean? What does it mean? Well, it can be taken in a generic sense and applied to all believers. I think you know that all believers are called to be men and women of God. As followers of Christ, we are to love God, we are to worship and serve Him in all that we do. We are to live lives of holiness before Him, taking taking in this generic sense, all Christian men are to be men of God. All Christian women are to be women of God. At least they are to pursue this. But I do believe that the phrase, man of God, has a more technical meaning. It is sometimes used in the Scriptures to refer to leaders within Old Covenant Israel and the New Covenant Church. So Moses was called the man of God in Deuteronomy 33.1. Prophets like Elijah were called men of God. You can look to 1 Kings 17.24 for an example of that. And in 2 Timothy 3.16-17 we read, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. I think we tend to read that thinking that it's a reference to all believers. But we see that immediately after this, Paul charges Timothy as an ordained minister of the gospel to preach the word, to be ready in season and out of season, to reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. So there in 2 Timothy 4, 2, 
we see that that phrase, man of God, is again being used in a technical way, referring to the minister and how the minister has been equipped for every good work. So when Paul called Timothy a man of God, it was to remind him not only that he was a Christian man, but that he was a man set apart for Christian ministry. He was a minister within Christ's church. And so the phrase is technical, I think. Paul used it to remind Timothy of his ordination. And so we must keep this in mind as we interpret this passage. What Paul says here, he says to Timothy, the Christian man and minister. And no, this does not mean that the passage only applies to ministers. It applies to all Christians generally, men and women, young and old. But it applies especially to Christian ministers. In verses 11 through 12, we learn that the man of God must flee from evil. And later we will learn the man of God must pursue righteousness. Look at verse 11 with me. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. And then another command. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. And then yet another command. Fight the good fight of the faith. And one more. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. And so in this passage we find a series of commands. Flee, pursue, fight, and take hold of, Paul says. And in just a moment we will talk about what Timothy was to flee from, what he was to pursue, what he was to fight against and take possession of. But let me first make this general observation. These are all things that are done in battle. I think we are to think of a battle when we read these terms. These are all things that are done in battle. The Christian life is a battle, friends. If you do not know that, you need to know that. And so too is Christian ministry. In battle, a soldier will be constantly fleeing and pursuing and fighting with the objective being to take hold of some prize. That is what battle is. That is what battle involves. And so it is for the Christian and for the Christian minister. The Christian life is a battle. And the battlefield is no place for idleness, complacency, or a lack of direction. If a soldier is idle, complacent, or lacking in direction on the battlefield, he will be overrun. And so I do believe that Paul is encouraging Timothy, exhorting him as a minister of the gospel and as a Christian man to, to be sober regarding the Christian life. It is a battle, and he is to be on guard, he's to be vigilant, he's to be ready, he's to be active. Always fighting the good fight of the faith. Flee these things, Paul says. Flee these things. What things? What things were Timothy to flee? Well, there are many things that we are to flee from in the Christian life. In 1 Corinthians 6.18, Paul says, Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but sexual, the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. And in 1 Corinthians 10.14, Paul says, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Flee from it. Run away from idolatry. And in 2 Timothy 2.22, he says, So flee youthful passions. Do not, do not be driven by your passions. Do not be consumed by them, but run away from, from these passions that characterize uh, the youthful. So what are we to flee from? We are to flee from all that is sinful, in summary. 
The Christian is to abhor what is evil. He is to hold fast to what is good. But when Paul tells Timothy to flee these things, he has in mind the things that he has just warned against in the previous passage. In particular, Timothy, and we along with him, was to flee from the love of money. He was to flee from the lack of contentment. He was to flee pride. He was to flee this quarrelsome disposition that was characteristic of the false teachers. Flee these things, Timothy says. Run away from these things. Don't mess around with them, but run away from them as quickly as you can. And you know, brothers and sisters, there is a time to stand and fight. There is a time for that. But there is also a time to run. And I think a skilled warrior knows the difference. And if you are to be a faithful servant of Jesus Christ, then you must learn to flee when the time is right. You must run away from sin, brothers and sisters. You must run away from the temptation to sin. And I'm afraid that we are sometimes far too comfortable with sin and complacent in regard to the temptation to sin. Instead of Running away when we see the prowling lion a long way off, we let it come near and we even walk towards it so that we cannot escape when it decides to pounce on us. Is that a helpful image? Sometimes that is how we deal with sin and the temptation to sin. We're just far too complacent. We need to run from sin and from the temptation to sin. Perhaps it is the sin of lust. Perhaps it is pride in our hearts. Maybe it is resentment or discontentment, anger, anxiety, or fear. In some instances, we are physically in places that we should not be. Sometimes that is the case. We are physically where we should not be. We have put ourselves in a dangerous place. We have put ourselves in a position to be, to be tempted. But more often than not, the battle is in the mind and in the heart. It does not have to do with physical location. It has to do with the condition of the mind and the heart. And friends, we must recognize that so many of our battles are fought there in the mind and in the heart. Flee these things, Paul says. Well, what things? Again, love of money, discontentment. Pride and a quarrelsome disposition. Do you notice something about what was warned against in the previous passage? These are all sins that reside within the heart and within the mind of the believer. And we are to flee from them. We're to run away from these sins and the temptation to sin in the mind and in the heart. All who are in Christ must flee from these things. But especially ministers within Christ's church... For when they stumble in these things, the damage to the congregation and the name of Christ can be very great. And so, brothers and sisters, I ask you, are you running away from sin, even those sins that reside within the heart and the mind? Or have you grown complacent? You need to think about that now. You need to think about it later today. Perhaps some of you have been far too willing to allow ungodly thoughts reside within your mind and ungodly emotions and affections to reside within your heart. Flee from these things. Not only are we to flee from sin, we must also pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. And so some do think that the Christian life is all about running away from evil. It is that. Those who have Christ as Lord are to run from wickedness. 
But notice that the Christian faith also involves running toward God and godliness through faith in Christ. He has atoned for all our sins. He has freed us from the curse of the law and from bondage to sin. And He empowers us to live right before Him by His Word and Spirit. And so Paul not only says flee, but he also says pursue. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. This is similar to what Paul says elsewhere using the language of put off and put on. In Ephesians 4.22 he says, Put off your old self and put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. To merely put off the old self will not do. That would leave us unclothed. In Christ we must also put on the new self so that we are clothed in righteousness and holiness. And so do not only put off but also put on. And do not only flee from sin, but also pursue holiness. We must do both things simultaneously if we are to be complete and mature in Christ. And I think this is very important, friends. Christ did not only die to remove the stain of your guilt, but He also died to make you holy and to sanctify you according to the truth. And His desire is that we would not only run away from doing evil in thought, word, and deed, but that we would also do, actively do what is right in Christ Jesus. I've put it this way to my children before. I'm not only telling you not to be mean, I'm telling you to be kind. Do you see the difference? It's a big difference. I'm not only telling you not to be mean, I'm telling you to be kind. The difference, I think, is profound. Husbands, do not be harsh with your wives. Is that all we should say? Husbands, do not be harsh with your wives. That's not all that we should say. We must say that. Instead, honor them and love them. Put off and put on. Flee and pursue. Put off the harshness, but do not forget to put on the gentleness, the love, the kindness, the respect. Christian, do not covet. Do not covet. Instead, Be thankful to God. Be thankful to God in your heart. Put off and put on. Flee and pursue. Do not be prideful. Instead, be humble. Put off and put on. Flee and pursue. And I am urging you to apply this principle to whatever sin is plaguing you. It is probably plaguing you in part because you are trying to put it off without putting on righteousness and holiness in its place by the grace of God. You're left unclothed invulnerable when we do this. Fight against the sin, flee from it, but do not forget to put on righteousness in its place. Do not forget to fill that void with, with godly living now that you have put off the ungodly living. If you neglect to put on the new self, I'm afraid that you will revert to putting on the old self. For we cannot go about unclothed. Put off the old self and put on the new. Flee from evil and pursue what is right in God's sight and with God's help. Replace the fear with faith, the lie with the truth, the discontentment with thanksgiving, the harshness with gentleness, the hate with love. This is what the Christian life requires and involves. Flee from evil and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness, the Apostle says. And so I ask you, are you pursuing these things? To pursue something means to strive after it with intense effort and with a definite purpose or goal. That is what the Greek word means. To pursue something is to strive after something with intense 
effort. Are you doing that in regard to these things? They will not fall into your lap, brothers and sisters. They're not just going to come to you. They will come to you by the grace of God alone. But you are to see that God calls us to strive after these things with intense effort. And every good Calvinist knows this. We know that in sanctification, God, by His grace, enables us to pursue these things so that we might obtain them. And so are you pursuing these things? Or have you grown complacent? Are you chasing after righteousness, specifically? Are you chasing after righteousness? That is the first thing that Paul calls Timothy to pursue, chase after righteousness. Of course, the Scriptures and other places teach so very clearly that no man except Christ is righteous. See Romans 3.10. All have broken God's commandments and stand guilty before Him. The only way for fallen sinners to be made right in God's sight is through faith in Christ. We must have Christ's righteousness given to us. Our filthy, sin-stained garments must be removed, and we must be clothed in Christ's pure white garments. And all of this, the removal of our guilt and the imputation of Christ's righteousness, is received by faith alone. You can read all of Romans, and particularly Romans 3, 21 and 22, to see this. But this is not what Paul is here exhorting Timothy to pursue. Timothy already had Christ's righteousness as his own, That came to him the moment he believed. He did not need more of it, for there was no more of it to get. This imputation of Christ's righteousness comes to us the moment we believe, and and we get all of it. There is nothing more to get. We are righteous before God. We are pure before Him because of the finished work of Christ given and applied to us. No, instead, Paul is not talking about imputed righteousness here, but personal righteousness. Having been made righteous by the grace of God and through faith in Christ, Timothy was then to pursue righteousness. That is to say, he was to strive with everything in him and with the strength that only God can give to live now right before God. Even in Romans, after establishing that no one is righteous and that to be righteous one must be clothed in Christ's righteousness, which is received through faith alone, in Christ alone, Paul then says... Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from life, from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under the law, but under grace." In other words, Paul here teaches in Romans and elsewhere, having been made righteous by the grace of God through faith in Christ, now be righteous. Now be righteous. Do what is right. Live right before God with the strength that God supplies. Pursue righteousness is Paul's command. Strive with intense effort to do what God requires of you as revealed in His Word. Are you pursuing righteousness? And notice that we are to pursue godliness too. Godliness is similar to righteousness, but it's not exactly the same. The word means to have appropriate beliefs and devout practice of obligations relating to God. So to be godly is to be righteous or religious in a pious way. You've probably noticed this, that the word pious has fallen on hard times. 
And when people hear it, they tend to think of someone who has a, a pious attitude, that is to say, an arrogant and snooty attitude. That is not the thing that we are chasing after. But piety, in the form of humble, warm, heartfelt, religious devotion to God and the things of God, that is what we are to pursue. And that is what godliness means. It means to have right belief and to be committed to devout and and right practice. We are to pursue godliness. We are to pursue this good kind of, of piety. And I think this is something we must regain in the church today and as Christians today. We must regain and maintain right beliefs and devout religious devotion within Christ's church. And pursue faith too. Faith here refers to trust in God through Christ. Pursue faith, brothers and sisters. Walk by faith and not by sight. What does this mean, to walk by faith and not by sight? It means to live your life in obedience to God, being propelled by faith in God and in His promises, and not by what you see with your natural eyes. Your natural eyes might tell you that God is losing, and that it would be better to live for the pleasures of this earth. Sometimes our natural eyes do tell us that. But if you see with eyes of faith, you will be moved to trust God and obey Him, even if it costs you the whole world. And so if fear is hindering you from serving God faithfully in this world, you need to grow in faith. I'm not calling anyone to live foolishly, but I am calling you to live faithfully, being freed and empowered to live courageously in this world because you trust in God. You are to trust in His promises. You are to trust that He will accomplish all of His purposes. You are to trust that He will keep you and bring you safely into His eternal kingdom. You already have faith in Christ, at least I I hope and pray that all of you do. Now, walk by faith and pursue even greater faith. Grow in knowledge of God, in your knowledge of God and in the promises of His Word. And in prayer you should say to the Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. We are to pursue even greater faith in the Christian life. Pursue love too. Love refers to love for God and our fellow man. God is love. And love is to be the distinguishing characteristic of the Christian. The Christian is to love God with all the heart, soul, mind and strength. And the Christian is to love his neighbor as himself. And listen to John 4, 7 and following. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this the love of God was manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and His love is perfected in us. That is 1 John 4, 7-12. through 12. Pursue love. Pursue it with intense effort. Chase after it. Make it your own. Grow in your love for God and in your love for one another. And we are to add to this steadfastness. Steadfastness is the ability to continue to bear up under difficult circumstances. That is what steadfastness is. The Christian is to be steadfast. 
The Christian is to develop this ability to bear up under, stand up under difficult circumstances. To be steadfast is to endure in the face of difficulty. If someone told you that Jesus died to make your life easy, they told you a lie. You need to hear that. Jesus died to make you holy. He died to reconcile you to the Father. He died so that you might have life eternal. But He was honest concerning life in this world. He spoke to His disciples saying, In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. And His disciples did experience tribulations. Many were killed for their faith. The author of this letter that we are studying suffered greatly and was eventually killed for his faith. And this is why he wrote to his co-worker Timothy saying, You, brother in the Lord, you, fellow minister, are going to need steadfastness. All Christians will need steadfastness, for life in this world is plagued with difficulties, but ministers especially need it. If they are not steadfast, they will certainly shrink back from the work of the ministry. In times of persecution, it is the ministers who suffer the greatest. And in times of peace, the church is still plagued by troubles of many kinds. We must pursue steadfastness, brothers and sisters. This is a quality, a characteristic that we all are to have. But I want for you to see that we will not obtain it if we do not first have faith and love. Steadfastness comes as a result of of, of a strong faith and a sincere love for God and, and one another. It is strong faith and a sincere love for God and neighbor that will move us to endure in the face of difficulty. This is what Paul says in Romans 5, 1 and following. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Did you hear what Paul just said there? Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And so if you were to take time to reflect upon that Romans 5, 1-5 through passage, you would see uh, that Paul was steadfast, even to the point of in rejoicing in his sufferings. But that, that steadfastness came as a result of, of strong faith in God and Christ. It came as a result of, of a sincere love for God and for others. So pursue steadfastness, brothers and sisters. How does a Christian cultivate steadfastness? How do we develop it? Have you ever asked that question of yourself? I wish to be more steadfast, more resolute in the face of difficulty. I'm way too easily shaken and disturbed by the trials and tribulations of, of life. I'm tossed to and fro like a wave of the sea. How, how can I develop greater steadfastness? How do we develop this ability to persevere in the faith while bearing up under difficult circumstances? Three things come to mind besides the general things I've already said about the need for strong faith and a sincere love for God and man. One, the Christian who wishes to be steadfast 
should consider carefully those who were steadfast who have gone before us. Consider Job. Consider the steadfastness of Job in the face of, of suffering. Consider Abraham, too. And do not forget figures like Joseph and King David. We are to remember Christ and His apostles. Indeed, there are many others in the history of the church who suffered patiently through trials and tribulations of various kinds, and they counted it all joy. We must learn from them, brothers and sisters. We must see how they walked by faith and not by sight. We must see how they live, not for this world, but for the world to come. We're to see how they believed that God was with them in the suffering to bring good from it, though His purposes might have remained mysterious to them. Two, the Christian who wishes to be steadfast should pay special attention to what the Scriptures say regarding God's purpose for suffering. We must fill our minds with God's truth, especially as it pertains to God's purposes for our suffering. In other words, be sure that you hold to sound doctrine. If your doctrine of God is off, you will not suffer well. If your doctrine of man, sin, and salvation is off, you will not suffer well. I might even say that if your eschatology is off, you may not suffer well. Doctrine matters, friends. That is what I am here saying to you. It matters. And one question you must have settled is, is it God's will for His people to suffer in this life? Is it His will for His people to suffer in this life? The answer is yes, absolutely. It is the will of God for His people to suffer. If that is surprising to you, then we have some work to do, don't we? For this is what the Scriptures teach, 1 Peter 2.20. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in His steps. And consider how Paul's preaching ministry is summarized in Acts 14.22. There we are told that he went about the cities of Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. That's an interesting summary of his preaching ministry. He went around to the churches that were already established, and he encouraged them in the Lord, and... He urged them to continue in the faith, to persevere, to be steadfast. And he was honest. He said to them, Do not forget, brothers and sisters, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Those who have believed the lie that God's will for them is that they have health, wealth, and prosperity in this life will not suffer well. They will certainly believe that God has failed them when they suffer. But we know that God cannot fail His people, for He has promised, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And when we suffer, we know that our loving Father has a purpose in it. And here I am simply saying to you, doctrine matters, friends. And you had better get sound doctrine before the trial comes. Get it before the trial comes. It is much more difficult to get sound doctrine regarding suffering and the sovereignty of God in the midst of the trial. It's not impossible. But the best time for laying a foundation is when the skies are clear and the sea is calm. Wouldn't you agree? If you wait until the rain falls, the wind blows, and the waves crash ashore, it may be too late to lay that sound 
and solid foundations. So get sound doctrine now if you wish to be steadfast. And thirdly, the Christian who wishes to be steadfast must be steadfast in the little things today. I think this is one of the most important things we can do to cultivate steadfastness in the Christian life. Be steadfast in the little things today. Be steadfast in the little trials and tribulations if you wish to be steadfast in the big ones. Have you ever wondered how the martyrs came to have the faith and courage to stand for Christ even when faced with the threat of death? Have you ever just marveled at their courage? Have you ever marveled at how resolute they were? They refused to deny Christ, and they were killed for it. They did not waver. They had steadfastness. How did they get that? How did they get that? Or have you ever watched a brother or sister suffer greatly and yet maintain a deep love for God and joy with thankfulness in their heart? Where does that strength come from? It comes from God. It is by His grace that we stand. But it most likely also comes from practice. We are to be steadfast in the little things, brothers and sisters. We are to endure suffering well from day to day. We are to teach our children to do the same. We must learn to deal with the dangers, difficulties, and disappointments, big and small, in a faithful way, entrusting our souls to God who is sovereign over all. And so do not be easily discouraged, dismayed, brothers and sisters. Do not be easily discouraged or dismayed. We are to trust in God day after day. We are to be steadfast. And to all of this, add gentleness. Add gentleness. It's quite a conclusion to Paul's little list here, isn't it? Be gentle. I'm afraid that in the world, and perhaps even in the church today, gentleness is equated with weakness. And I suppose that some who are weak, excuse me, and I suppose that some who are gentle are weak. But I am here saying that the two do not necessarily go together. It is possible to be very strong, yet gentle. Our Lord was strong and gentle, wasn't He? He was the strongest, most mature and uncompromising man to ever live. And yet He was meek and mild. The truth is this. It is those who are harsh who tend to be inwardly weak. They are harsh because they are afraid. They are harsh because they are immature and insecure. But those who have strong faith, sincere love, and a steadfast spirit are to also be gentle. They may also be gentle. We are to pursue this, brothers and sisters. Pursue gentleness. Gentleness is a very important Christian virtue. Listen to Galatians 6.1. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual, you who are mature, should restore him in a spirit of gentleness, the Apostle says. In a spirit of gentleness, keep watch on yourselves, lest you too be tempted. Ephesians 4.1, I therefore a prisoner for the Lord urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And listen to the way that Paul described his own ministry. He wrote to the Thessalonians saying, But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. Was Paul bold? Was he strong? Was he unwavering? Yes, he was. Did he sometimes confront the false teacher and others who were rebellious within the church? Yes, he did. 
But how did he describe his own ministry? What was his disposition? He said, he was gentle, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. Have you ever witnessed that? A mother taking care of her child. It, 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 there's tenderness there. And we need to pursue this same quality. All Christians are to pursue gentleness, but it is essential that ministers be gentle. This is one of the qualifications for elders, remember. An elder must not be violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. 1 Timothy 3.3 Ministers must be gentle because they are called to serve people who are sometimes hurting. And even when they must rebuke the rebellious, they are to do this in humility and with self-control. Perhaps I could put it this way, harshness reveals weakness. We are harsh when we are tired. We are harsh when we are frustrated. We are harsh when we are fearful, selfish, and prideful. And so do not hear me forbidding firmness. That is not what the Scriptures are saying. Christ was sometimes firm. Paul was firm. There's a place for that, but never should we be harsh, nasty, mean, cutting, and rude. We must pursue a gentle and loving disposition in the Christian life. Thirdly, we learn in this passage that the man of God must fight the good fight of the faith. The word translated as fight means to struggle or strive. It means, in fact, to, to agonize. If you were to read the Greek word, you would hear our English word agonize in it. Uh, that is what it means to fight. The Christian life is a struggle, friends. In other places, Paul uses athletic and even military metaphors to describe the Christian life. Consider 1 Corinthians 9.24. There we read, Do you not know that, all, that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives a prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run, Paul says, aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. We are to struggle and strive in the Christian faith, just as an athlete struggles and strives in the gymnasium. Is that what your Christian life looks like? Does it look similar to that? Are you struggling and striving in the Christian faith? Are you fighting the good fight of the faith? Or have you chosen a life of leisure and ease instead? We must see that the Christian life is a struggle, friends. We must fight against temptation and sin. We must fight against unbelief. We must contend with the world, the evil one and his schemes. And we must even contend with our own flesh that is not yet perfected. It is a struggle. Are you agonizing in the Christian faith, chasing after that prize that is before us? Fourthly and finally, we learn that the man of God may, must take hold of eternal life. Take hold of eternal life, the Apostle says. What does Paul mean when he commands Timothy to take hold of the eternal life? We might ask, didn't Timothy already have eternal life? Wasn't he saved? I think he was, yeah. He was saved from a young age. He was now a minister within Christ's church. Certainly he was saved. Isn't eternal life ours the moment we believe upon Christ? The answer, yes and no. Yes and no. Eternal life is ours now because Christ has earned it for us. Eternal life is our inheritance and the Spirit of God is our deposit and guarantee. The Spirit seals us when we believe. He puts His mark on us in the waters of baptism. 
but we will take possession of eternal life in the future when we pass from this earth or when Christ returns to make all things new. This is what Paul says in Ephesians 1.13 and following. In Christ you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. Do you hear it there in that passage? We have eternal life. Christ has earned it. There's nothing more to be done. The Spirit is our guarantee. We are sealed by the Holy Spirit. And this Spirit of, is ours. This guarantee is ours until we acquire full possession of it to the praise of His glory. And so you have eternal life now. It is yours by way of promise and inheritance, but we have not taken full possession of it yet. We have not yet entered into glory. And when Paul commanded Timothy to take hold of the eternal life, he meant persevere in the faith until the end, Timothy. Do not turn back. And we know that he also had this intention to say to Timothy, persevere in the Christian ministry. Do not turn back. Yes, God will preserve all who are His. We know this to be true. But we also know that one of the means that God uses to preserve His people are the commands of Scripture to persevere. God will preserve His elect, and He preserves His elect in part by commanding them to persevere and by empowering them to obey that command. Notice that eternal life was the thing to which Timothy was called. Timothy, just like you and me, was called to faith in Christ so that he would have eternal life. And notice that eternal life was the thing about which Timothy made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I take this as a reference to Timothy's baptism, though it could also refer to his ordination. The point is this, Timothy was to persevere. He made this profession of faith, he made this commitment to minister in Christ's church. He was to follow through on his profession and his commitment. And consider this, dear brethren. The pressures on Timothy to turn back were probably very great. We should not underestimate the pressures that he felt. We should not forget that Paul, his mentor, had been imprisoned. He would be imprisoned again. He would eventually be killed for his faith in Christ and particularly his work in the ministry. That's what Timothy is observing, right? What has happened to my mentor, Paul? He has suffered greatly. In the Christian ministry. He has suffered greatly as a Christian man. And so certainly Timothy knew that this would probably be his fate as well. Do not underestimate the pressure that Timothy felt. Do not underestimate the dangers. Remembering the dangers helps us to better appreciate Paul's exhortation to perseverance. Brothers and sisters, I do hope that you are comforted by the promise that Christ will keep all who are His and will lose not one of them. You can see John 17 or Romans 8.29 and following to learn more about that. He will surely finish the work He started in you, Philippians 1.6. But it is also important for you to hear these exhortations to persevere. They are found throughout the Scriptures and they are very important. God uses these exhortations to move us to perseverance. He preserves us by His grace. And how does He do it? By, he does it by enabling us to persevere. Friends, you have a part to play. In other words... Do not grow slack. Do you not know that, all, that, that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. 
Run with intentionality. Run with the prize in mind. Do not slow down. Do not let up is what the Apostle there says in 1 Corinthians 9.24. Press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Philippians 3.14 While the promise of entering His rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. That is Hebrews 4.1. These exhortations to persevere, these warning passages as they are sometimes called, are very important to us as we, the people of God, hear them. The Spirit of God does use them to propel us to constant obedience and to perseverance in the Christian life. The man of God and all the saints with him must flee from evil, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness, He must fight the good fight of the faith and take hold of the eternal life. And all of this requires living with intentionality, doesn't it? The Christian must not simply drift through life. No, instead the Christian must count the cost, pick a side, and have only one king. For the Christian life is not a stroll in the park, it is a battle. And friends, this passage that we have studied today and the one that follows They really belong together. Time will not permit us to give adequate attention to both of them today, and so I've saved verses 13 through 16 for the next Lord's Day. But I thought it would be good to at least mention the message of the following passage by way of conclusion. For there is good news there. There is comfort and hope. In verses 11 and 12, there is a lot of exhortation. A string of commands are found there. Timothy, this is what you are to do. And children of God, this is what you are to do. But in the passage that we will study on the next Lord's Day, there is, there is gospel. There is comfort. There is hope. It is there that we see what the source of our strength is to be. It is God and Christ. Let me simply read that text to you as we close And I want for you to listen to what Paul emphasizes concerning the source of our life, the source of our strength. There Paul says to Timothy, I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who in His testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which He will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign. Do you hear it? An emphasis upon God who is sovereign. The King of kings and the Lord of lords who alone has immortality. Who dwells in unapproachable light whom no one has ever seen or can see. To Him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. And so in this beautiful doxology... The Apostle Paul set Timothy's eyes upon God who is sovereign over all, the Lord of lords, the King of kings, who has life in Himself and is able to give it to all who belong to Him. How will the people of God persevere in the the faith when faced with trials and tribulations of many kinds? The answer is this, by trusting in God and in Christ who is our life. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in Heaven, I pray for my brothers and sisters in Christ. I pray this also for myself. 
that you would help us to live the Christian life intentionally. Help us to flee evil and to pursue with intense effort righteousness. Father, help us to fight the good fight of the faith. Help us to press on with steadfastness towards the goal. We thank you that eternal life is ours through faith in Christ alone. But may we be found faithful until we enter into glory. O Lord, strengthen us. Help us to be firm and resolute. But also give us these wonderful qualities that have been mentioned. Give us love in our hearts. Give us strong faith. Give us gentle dispositions. Father, we pray for all of these things. In the name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior, and all of God's people say, Amen.